Let's pray. Lord, you are holy. You are almighty. And we're here today because of you. And Father, I pray that whatever it is that we brought in today with us, whether it's on our minds or our hearts or our shoulders, help us to help us to let that go. Spirit, fill this place and fill our hearts and our minds. Help us to focus on what it is you want to speak to us today and in the passage that we're going to look at. Thank you. Thank you that you are not only all-powerful and everywhere, but you are all-loving and you're very patient. Thank you. Father, um, thank you for the Holy Spirit that strengthens us and lights a path in front of us and, and gives us the ability to, to follow you each day. Even in the world that we live in, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we've been soaking. I mean, we are soaking and meditating and thinking, and I've been hearing questions, and we're making observations in the book of Jude, 25 verses for six weeks. And um, I, I hope that this week, as you took that manuscript study, that you, you found all the places that the Trinity shows up, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and, uh, and, and that you observed the adjectives used to describe God, even in the book of Jude. And this week, if you didn't grab one of those last week, I would encourage you to grab one this week. And what I want you to do this week, two things, two things in your personal study of the book of Jude this week. The first is, I want you to make... Um, observations of all the places in the book where Jude pairs things in groups of three. Um, you can put them in brackets, you can put boxes around them, however you want to do that, but find all of the places where, where Jude uses groups of three. Three examples here, three examples there. Um, mercy, peace, and love was the first one that he used. Um, and then again, ask the Holy Spirit to teach you throughout the course of the week to speak to your heart to search your heart, to see, as David did, if there be any wicked way in you, in me. Let's soak, think, pray, and learn. And I believe that as we do, God honors that. God, as, as we take time to... to re, because I was talking with somebody last week. You know, we tend to just take short passages here in our reading, even as we read a daily devotional. We'll take a group of verses here and a subject, and a group of verses here and a subject. Well, the book of Jude is a letter that was written, and, and that's not how we read letters. You know, you moms and dads, remember back when you were dating and when... You know, most of us in here, we actually did write letters to each other. They weren't text messages or emails or that sort of thing. Remember what it was like when you got a letter from that other person? You know, did you like read the first three lines and then set it down and come back to it later? No, you read the whole thing. I mean, I remember those days. I have some of those letters. In fact, I brought one with... No, just kidding. I didn't bring one with me. My wife... No. Oh, and I didn't read it just once. Right? I mean, I read it over and over and over again, and then I started about thinking, the, thinking about the words that she used and the sentence structure. I'm not an English major or anything, but I would, you know, well, what did she mean by this? Oh, that makes me feel good. You know, things like that. That's how we read letters. And, and I'm hoping that that's kind of the experience we get this week so that in your personal study, when we move on to another series, you, you kind of do that yourself. Take whole books or, or whole big sections and you just... Read it over and over and over again and trust that the Holy Spirit is going to speak to you through that. So this morning, um, we're going to continue where we left off last week. Last week, we ended with verse 3 in the book of Jude. If, if you're not turned to the book of Jude yet, I would encourage you to in your Bible um, this morning. It's between Revelation and 3 John, um, the book of Jude. And uh, last week, we ended with verse 8. And uh, in verse 8, Jude summarized uh, talking about, uh, he said this, in the very same way on the strength of their dreams, he's talking about the dreamers, these ungodly people, pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. Again, three things that Jude points out. 
He summarizes those which we talked about last week, but then he begins to expand on them in the next verses, which is where we are today. But he starts with the last first. He starts with the celestial beings. Look at verse 9 there. It says this, But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So there's debate on this passage as to whether... whether Michael, the archangel, was talking to Satan himself, was, was saying that he, um, he didn't dare condemn Satan himself or if he didn't con- dare condemn Moses, which was what the conversation was about. Either way, the point of this verse right here is the fact that God is ruler of all. God is ruler over all. He is the authority. He is the one that does the judging. It's God. He's ruler of the just and the unjust. He's he's ruler of the godly and the ungodly. And and where are we? Where are you? Where would would I fall? Just, unjust, godly, ungodly. And uh, I trust that we're all evaluating ourselves in the midst of this. And and ask yourself the question, what what is the Holy Spirit showing me in the midst of of this? I mean... um, Do you find yourself in a place of submission to what you've been hearing, or do you find yourself in a position of open rebellion against God? Yeah, yeah, I know that's true, but I'm not going to do it. I'm doing the opposite or whatever. So the archangel Michael says in this that that Satan is is trying to find a reason that Moses couldn't be in heaven, that that he would be declared unrighteous, and, and Satan is trying to get um, the archangel to admit that, to say, well, Moses, you know, he, he was imperfect, which he was. He should not be allowed in there. And in this, um, Jude says that even the archangel Michael wasn't willing to slander either one. He did not heap slander against Satan in treating this powerful being in a loose way. Um, without some sort of respect of the uh, power that he wields and the temptations that he can bring, or he wasn't willing to say, oh, yeah, because Michael, the archangel, is, I would say, a pretty high created being in the hierarchy of, of God's creation. And if there was anybody that would be able to, to place some sort of judgment or criticism on Moses, I would think, Michael could do it and maybe even be right. But Michael says, no, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord is the one that has the authority here. He is the judge. It's all up to God. That's what Jude is telling us here in verse 9. And then he continues in verse 10. Yet these people, these people, he's talking about those who have slipped in among the Christians Um, those who seek to sway people into untruth. He says, yet these people slander whatever they do not understand and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. Strong caution. I mean, Jude just continues verse after verse after verse of laying it out there. Look, he says, we need to be intentional and we need to be cautious about the things that we say and and how we live and the things that we think about because our hearts can deceive us. Our mind can play tricks on us. The temptations of the world, they are enticing. You know, they are temptations because they offer us something that we're led to believe is really good. Or that we shouldn't have to live without. As humans, we don't like to be told we can't do something or shouldn't experience something, right? You're in the mall, you see a sign on a bench that says wet paint. What's the first thing you do? You go up to touch it to see if it's wet, right? Or I should have said the sign says don't touch wet paint. There we go. Right, the first thing we do is touch it. You tell your kid he can't do something. Sometimes we do that as reverse psychology, right? Because we want them to do it. But the opposite is true, too. You tell them they can't do something. And, and what, you know, I've heard, I've heard people tell a bunch of kids something that they shouldn't do. And I'm like, yeah, you're putting ideas in their mind. It would have been left, better to just have left that unsaid. Um, but our hearts can deceive us. 
But when we live like, you know, just to our own understanding and to our own will, Jude says, that, that we're something like animals, that we just live by instinct and we live irrationally. We, and I think we see the effects of this every day in our world. Sin running rampant. Terrible decisions being made at every level of society. You know, thinking, I mean, sin running rampant, and it's, it's like dragging people towards an eternal destruction, right? People don't even realize that they think that the decisions they're making are, are good while they're politically correct. Um, and uh, even if they're not politically correct, they, they may be thinking a certain way. And, and sometimes you just think, how did you get, how did you get there? How, how, why did you even think that was something that you should do or should say yes to or, or experience? Look at the consequences it's having in your life. Why didn't you see those before? It's, it's because we, we just live life willy-nilly, unaware, and we're not intentional about the things that we read or, or that we watch or that we see or that we experience. And, and, and Jude is saying, hey, look, this is important. These people could slip in, and before you know it, you're dead and lost. Just say no. Persevere as servants of God. Acknowledge him, acknowledging him as our sole authority and ruler, surrendering ourselves to Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our ruler. You see, God is ruler of all. Then Jude, then Jude gives this example. He, says, he gives us further examples of the ungodly dreamers. I mean, that's just what he does. Further examples of the un, ungodly dreamers. And, and once again, Jude's examples come from the Old Testament. Don't want to spend a lot of time here, but man, I was just like, this is great stuff. Okay? Um, look at verse 11 there. He says, They have taken the way of Cain, they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, and they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Funny that, that he gives three things, isn't it? So, first of all, he says they've taken the way of Cain. What is the way of Cain? Well, Cain didn't want to be obedient to God. God said, this is how you, how you do the sacrifices. And Cain decided that he wasn't going to do it that way. He was going to offer something different. And God said, no, I reject your sacrifice. I reject this because you're not, you're not listening to me. You need to do what I say. And Cain gets angry, and of course, he eventually kills his brother, but before he gets to that point, um, look up here at Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, um, after his sacrifice was rejected, it says, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. It's there. It's enticing you. Your anger is going to bring you to this, Cain. But why are you angry? If you would just do what's right. When our children defy us and get in trouble for it, or they, 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 we ask them to do something and they don't do it and then they get angry at us, what is our response? My thought, of course, is, well, if you just would have done what you were... I mean, I heard this lots growing up as a child. If you would have just done it this way, then this wouldn't have happened. For some reason, um, I was in college. Okay, here's a story for you. I'm in college and my dad sends me out with the tractor and the eight-bottom plow to plow a half of a pivot. And he says to me as I leave the house, do not back this up in the field. You know, it's, it's not a three-point plow. It's got a big wheel on the back, you know. So I'm going along, and it gets plugged. And I raise it up, and what do you think I do? Yeah, I backed it up, just like Dad said not to. I broke it. I mean, snapped it. Dad, of course, anytime you call dad in the middle of the afternoon, he knows what's coming, right? What did you do? You know that thing you said not to do? I did it. Okay, I'll go get the welder. I mean, that's how my dad responded to things like that. I didn't need to feel any more guilty than I already did. I already felt terrible. 
right? But, but that's what happens. We, we do our own thing. And, and, then, and then sometimes we get upset when we actually get corrected or in trouble for that thing because we think that we should just be able to do whatever we want to. The way of Cain, um, John Stott says this, as Jude looks at the sadly mistaken Christians in the church who have taken the way of Cain, then he is saying that they understand very clearly the standards that God expects, but they, they take it upon themselves to decide whether they, they take it upon themselves to decide whether they are going to accept or not. Of course, they would not say, those are God's rules and I will reject them. We're not that blatant. We don't do it that way. It happens more subtly than that, but all the same, it's a denying that there is such a thing as right and wrong and that, the, and that God will judge our muddled world by his absolute standards. That is the way of Cain. Then Jude says, they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. Maybe you're not familiar with Balaam's story. I mean, I'm getting reminded of these Old Testament events. Balaam takes the mistake of Cain, and he takes it one step further. Balaam not only was not only willing to rebel against God, he encouraged others to do the same. So it wasn't just a personal decision, it was a personal decision and then a leading other people along. And Balaam's main motivation was money, greed. You see, the king of Moab hired Balaam to put curses on the nation of Israel. Balaam, at, at first, um, and he acknowledges in Numbers um, that, uh, that he couldn't do anything beyond what God commands. He knows this to be true. Yet he sets out, well, in fact, he says, even if the king were to give him his palace filled with silver and gold, I couldn't do anything beyond what God commands. And then, and then he tries he tries to, to, to put curses on Israel, and God turns every curse to a blessing. And Balaam is seeing this. But then, but then the story turns right back 180 degrees around, and all of a sudden the nation of Israel is, uh, um, they're, they're giving themselves over to the Moabite women in sexually immoral behavior. And it raises the question, well, what happened? God's turning this into, into blessings, and Balaam continues. Well, Balaam figured out another way to, to mislead the people of God. And he actually succeeds. I mean, we see it over and over. False prophets, dreamers in our culture, selling a new way of thinking, something that's better, something that we should give our life to. Oh, it was life-changing for me. And then what? Profiting off of it. You know, you think you can guess the last day of the planet Earth when God's going to judge it? Come up with some things that you think people will believe, put them in a book, and sell it. Harold uh, Camping comes to mind. The, the man was wrong four times, and people still believed him and, and made him a rich man. I think he lives in South America now. For real, I'm, I'm not joking. Um, so, they not only are twisting what God has said, but they're misleading other people in that. We must persevere and contend for the faith. We must, we must personally study and know the word of God so that we are not deceived. Then Jude says they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Korah's story is found in Numbers chapter 16, verses 1 through 35. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but, but Korah, along with some other Levitical priests, are rebelling against Moses. They're rebelling against the hierarchy that's been set up. They, they're essentially saying, well, we think we should have more say in this. We think we should be in charge. They wanted to do things their way, and Moses called an assembly at which he says, God's going to choose who is right here and who is wrong. Okay, I'll see your challenge. Let's leave it up to God. And, and here is the end of the passage. Um, it says this, and this is Numbers 16, 30 through 35. Um, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. As soon as he finished saying all of this, the ground under them split apart. And Okay, before we read the rest of this, don't look at the screen anymore, look at me. Um, 
God tells Moses to have all of the other people get away from the tents and away from the area where these Levites who were rebelling were. Okay? So, so God actually has them kind of in the place where he wanted them. And then, and then this happens. As he finished saying all of this, the ground under them split apart, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah together with their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. Wow. God is judge and he will and and he did, and, and Jude's message just keeps rolling right along. I mean, pretty relentlessly, lest we lose concentration, I guess, on what he's trying to, to get across. Um, so look at verse 12. Let's read 12 and 13 of Jude. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. What in the world is all of that about? Well, first of all, I think Love Feast sounds some, like some sort of reference to the 60s, right? Um, it, it just seems odd to me, but it's nothing like that. In fact, the Love Feast was a really, really good event um, uh, I believe it was a weekly event. They, they would get together in groups called love feasts, and they would have a meal. To, I, I liken it to a, a small group Bible study in, in today's culture. They would get together. They would have a meal together. They would pray for each other. They would worship the Lord together. Um, let's see, what other things? Um, they would support each other. Um, there would be some teaching involved, and then they also celebrated the Lord's Supper. They, had, they, they would partake in communion together. These were called love feasts. And, and Judah's saying, look, these, these men, these people who want to sway you, they're working their way even into these events. You need to recognize this. You're going to be infiltrated. This we need to be ready. We need to identify that, that this can happen even in our circles. Jude uses six graphic images in verses 12 and 13, and, and I wanted to, to jump into these. Maybe this would be a good section for you to read over and over this week too and go, what, 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 is, what is he describing here? Um, clouds without rain. We should know what that is. Blown along by the wind. Boy, howdy do we know what that is. I mean, um, read through those. Think about those things. I'm not going to do it this morning because I don't, didn't want to be here till 11.30. Um, just 11.20. All right, he continues to roll on. Look at verse 14 here. Enoch, another Old Testament character, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones, to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Jude is saying anyone without Christ, this is how they're living. This is what their life is like. Now, I observe five don'ts in these last three verses. The first don't is this. Jude, essentially, he's saying these are the things they're doing. And obviously, they're things that we shouldn't do. He says, don't be defiant towards God. When we choose our own way, we're in defiance of God. Now, most of us know what a defiant child looks like, right? I mean, any of you that have a two-year-old in this room right now know exactly, maybe it happened like 10 minutes ago. Right? You ask your child to do something or you ask them to not do something and they look at you and then they do it. That's not fun as a parent, kids. No. You should not defy your parents either. Um... 
uh, it, it's, it's not good. Um, how does a defiant child act? I mean, we've explained the behavior and choices we expect them to make. We explain it very clearly to them. We say, this is the consequence if you don't do this. They're in complete understanding, and then what? They do just the opposite. And then what's left for us to do? Pay the consequence. I said this would happen, and now it's going to. My grandson, I don't know if he does this still, but uh, he got into this thing where, where his mom would tell him to do something, and he'd look at her and he'd say, nah, I'm good. Okay, now, if he said that to me, I would crack up. Because that's, that's actually kind of funny. But left, left to do that, that's, that's a defiant statement. No, not going to do it. Not going to do it. It's not cute, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, Sarah's like, eh, yeah, it's pretty cute. Um, it's defiance in a subtle way. Don't be, don't be defiant to God. They also, Jude says, grumble. I didn't touch it. Well, I have fresh batteries, so I know it's not that. All right. Don't grumble and find fault. These are two really, these are really two things rolled into one point. Negative people, what is it like when we spend a day with a negative person? And we kind of go home negative, don't we? It, it really rubs off on us. It's really hard. Uh, it's really hard to be around a negative person. Uh, man, George, George never has anything good to say. He's constantly grumbling about something. Well, I think Jude's actually referring to a stronger grumbling than this. And the illustrations that we have of grumbling are very vivid and very clear from the Old Testament. The Israelites were great at grumbling. Um, they, were, they had been freed from the nation of Egypt. And they immediately started their grumbling when they're backed up at the, at the Red Sea and, and Pharaoh's army is coming after them. And they immediately start saying, oh, it would have been better if we'd have stayed. Would you bring us out here? Blah, blah, blah. Grumbling against Moses, but not only just Moses, against God, because he's the one that actually freed them. I mean, they were really, really good at it. Um, and, and it not only caused trouble for the leaders, but, it, but they continued to seal their own judgment in this. Grumblers. And then there's fault finders. Sometimes, as parents, that can be us. I mean, I, I think about myself as a dad growing up, and one of, the, one of the struggles was making sure that I encouraged my kids more than I criticized them or corrected them. It's easy to correct somebody. It's easy to find something wrong with something that somebody does. The difficult thing is to find something good, even in the midst of somebody that's doing things that aren't right. I mean, we, be, we can become Eeyores, right? You're familiar with Eeyore, right? You, are you guys familiar with Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Oh, it's going to rain. Oh, I mean, he complained all the time. He was just kind of a sad animal. Is Eeyore a donkey? Is he? Are you sure? It's not a small horse. So there was an elderly man. He lay in a hospital with his wife of 55 years sitting at his bedside. Is that you, Ethel, at my side again? He whispered. Yes, dear, she says. He softly says to her, remember years ago when I was in the veterans' hospital? You were, you were with me then. You were, you were with me when we lost everything in a fire. And Ethel, when we were poor, you stuck with me then too. The man sighed and said, I tell you, Ethel, I think you're bad luck. <laughs> see, sometimes we just can't see the good. And this can, get, this can happen when we get crosswise with God too. God, why did you do it this way? Why did you let this happen? Why not this? Why now? Why not later? 
and we start to grumble. This should have been different. This isn't fair. Jude says, don't accuse God. He's faultless. We must be careful with our words. We must be careful with our words. Words are powerful things. These people, these dreamers, they also follow their evil desires. So don't follow your evil desires. Satan knows what our weaknesses are. He knows where we are the most vulnerable. And our culture today is highly sexually charged, which is simply our humanity um, also struggles with greed Struggles with the desire to be powerful and successful and popular many times at any cost. And we just follow our desires. In fact, we're told by secular psychology that it would be detrimental to us if we said no to too many of these urges. It's just natural. You should just... We should just give in. In fact, maybe, maybe we should even start elevating the unnatural and get it to a point where it's considered normal. We should start changing our cultural rules to accommodate these evil desires. I mean, it's decision time. Are we going to read and study and learn what God wants and be obedient to Him? Or are we just going to walk aimlessly down the road of life, just not wanting to cause any waves or disagree with anybody over anything, which is hard to do today and have a decent conversation? I get that. Now, these, as you think about these things, they're almost a progression, aren't they? Um, there's defiance towards God, and then in that defiance we sort of get sad and and, and then we start grumbling and, and uh, finding fault in, in others. Then this moves us down the path where we're now living for ourselves and following our own evil desires because, because we've given in to the selfishness. And then, and then we aren't just living it, we're boasting about it. So then we boast about ourselves. Hey, look at me, look how, you can't tell me I can't do this. See how I'm living? This is where life is. This is what we deserve. I have arrived. Look at me. In fact, join me. Jude says these dreamers boast about themselves, and we continue down the road to destruction until, finally, we're willing to do whatever it takes. We become willing to use people. We become willing to use people. They look for every opportunity to gain something, money, power, notoriety, and they're willing to use whatever means available, even using people. Throwing friends and family and neighbors and coworkers under the proverbial bus. In fact, they're even willing to flatter others. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're great. I really like you. But they're only doing that because it benefits them in some way. I mean, flattery is not a really good word. According to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, reported incidents of sexual exploitation have risen dramatically in the last five years. In 1998, the center received 4,573 reports. In 2003, the number of incidents rose to 81,987, and I can't even imagine what it is 15 years later. No, you see, when we go down this road, we are even willing to use people to get what we want. Sin is crouching at your door, God said to Cain. Hear me, hear me. Just do what's right, and then what does Cain do? He murders his brother. Because he just can't do what God wants him to do. Man. Look at verse 14. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, judgment and conviction is coming. My prayer is that we heed the conviction and that we surrender. Our desires, our wants, our needs, our attitudes, our priorities, everything. That we would surrender it all to Jesus. Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. 
He will make those paths straight. He will point the way. He will show us what's right and what's good. And he will strengthen us. We have the Holy Spirit to strengthen us along life's journey so we don't fall into the traps of the devil. When we trust Jesus, he will help us to stand. When we trust him as Savior, we will be saved. We will experience eternal life in heaven with him and then we will begin to grow in that relationship with him in this life and we will walk away and turn away from the things that have been dragging us down, the sin that we were in chains to instinctively before Christ and now we're not, we're not bound in those chains anymore but, there's the, the, but that temptation to sin, sin is still there. So, again, as I did last week, I, I just didn't want to end this morning's message with all of the don'ts. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. Be, be warned, be warned, be warned. I want us to look at the opposite of that. So, um, so the last thing I want to do is I want to talk about some things, the opposites of what we just talk about, talked about, things to do. Let's do these things. As Christians, as attenders of North Hills, let's do these things in our families, in our life, in our community, in, in our church. First thing let's, that we can do is to seek righteousness and obedience. Let's do that. It's the opposite of what these other men were doing. Let's study God's word. Let's know what he requires of us. Let's, let's know how he wants us to live. And then when we know it, let's do it. As much as the world would like us to believe that if we say no to things, we just don't want to have any fun. It's simply not true. I mean, seriously, life is hard and it's difficult and I've wept over things and experiences that I've gone through, but I would not trade my relationship with Jesus Christ for anything. I mean, I, I feel like I've lived... Man, it's been a fun ride. It's great. Dick Young would say, I am, a, I am a satisfied customer of my relationship with Jesus Christ. How many times have you, family of Dick Young, heard him say that? It's true. Oh, yeah, it's tough as nails sometimes, and it's hard. And sometimes we do have to say no to some things that the world says, ooh, this is really fun. But in the end, in the end, it's much better. So let's seek righteousness and obedience. Uh, let's also find the good in people and choose to be happy slash content. Uh, John Maxwell would say it this way. He would say, see that everyone has the potential to be a 10. When you look at people, see a 10 over their head. They may not be that now, but there's things in their life that are positive. We can encourage those things. We can support people. We can love them. No matter how they're living. Again, as I said last week, it's not up to us to change their hearts and their minds. It's up to us to love them, yet present the truth. And I also think, you know, being happy and content in life is just a decision we make every morning when we get up. I think we can make that decision. The third one is this. Follow God's ways. I know it's kind of like the first one, but you see, God wants us to guard our purity. You know, this is a big one in our culture, I think, and even for our kids who are in the room today. God wants you to guard your purity. You see, he, he wired us and he created us the way that he did. He gave us sexual desires. He gave us all of that. He wired us that way. And then he, cre he created the man and he created the woman and he created us for relationship with each other. In a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. That's how God created us. And it's truly amazing when we experience marriage within the bounds that God has set forth for us. Let's be faithful in that. Hard as nails in our culture today because there isn't any message out there in the secular world that says anything even remotely like that. But it's in here. 
And who are we going to listen to? By instinct? Or are we going to listen and follow the word of God? Let's be faithful to God in this area. Abstain from sex before marriage. Guard our hearts and our minds from explicit images and material. Let's teach our children that marriage is between a man and a woman. The Bible, again, is clear on these things. Let's follow these ways. Let's be faithful in the marriages that we have. Let's also live humbly for the benefit of others. When we see ourselves or our friends see us boasting about ourselves, man, it would be great if somebody would come and say, hey, you need to take a step back. Your pride is showing through. Now, I'm not saying, be, you know, I'm not saying don't be prideful about doing a good job or working hard or any of those things, but there is a place where that, that pride sort of takes the next step and the next level and it becomes less about... Um, you know, serving others for the benefit of them and more about making a name for ourselves or, or, or putting ourselves out there so other people will notice. The Bible says this in Philippians 2.3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Let's live humbly for the benefit of others. And then this one, I... I stuck with the word, even though it can have a negative connotation. I said, let's flatter others with the right motives. I'm not saying empty flattery that's not true. I'm, I'm saying let's encourage others. Let's, let's lift others up. It's the opposite of what, J, uh, what Jude said. Let's see the good in others. Let's, let's serve them. Let's, you know what? It may even just be simply being nice to them. It's crazy to me that, that you could open the door for somebody in a store and, and they would look at you like, what planet are you from? Or that you would tell somebody, a clerk, that you waited 30 minutes to finish the person in front of you and you know the credit card wasn't right and this would only happen at Walmart because they won't open additional aisles, right? Um, they, you're... You get there, and maybe you recognize that they were new or whatever, and they constantly say, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And if you just showed the slightest bit of patience, and then when they're done helping you, which is what they're there to do, you say, man, I just really appreciate you. Thank you. Or you do something nice for someone, and I mean, I've, I, I hear it on occasion, why would you do this for me? Why did, you, why did you say that? Why did you do that? Why? Because people don't hear it today anymore. Let's flatter others with the right motives, not so we can get something out of it. Well, maybe if I'm nice to them, they'll give me a 20% discount. No, let's just be nice to them because it's, it's the right thing to do. <laughs> now, here's the thing. The power of the Holy Spirit in our lives provides us with the ability to do what we just talked about and what we just saw in the book of Jude. Um, if, if we rely on ourselves for that, you know, we'll find our, ourselves, and we often do in the cycle of the Israelites, eventually grumbling, and then eventually, finally, God says, hey, okay, okay, oh, yes, right, you are all powerful, and I serve you, and that sort of thing. But we need to intentionally call on him to work in our lives. Here's the thing. Our world is not going to encourage this. Just as much as the, the world what, where the people Jude was writing to wasn't encouraging it. In fact, quite the opposite. Now, there's a hugely popular uh, board game by Milton Bradley. In fact, we did a series way back in the day called The Game of Life. We had big walls up here in the front. The church looked nothing like it does right now. And we had, it said life up there. How many, I mean, everybody knows what the game of life is, right? I mean, the board game. Think about this, okay? Um, it was a, a Milton, we can, we can see where culture has gone by the game of life. 
1798, before Milton Bradley was born, a board game from England arrived in the United States and became popular. It was called the New Game of Human Life. Acquiring virtues sped you through the game while vices slowed you down. Parents were encouraged to play this game with their children. The game's main point was, life is a voyage that begins at birth and ends at death. God is at the helm, fate is cruel, and your reward lies beyond the grave. In 1860, Milton Bradley invented a simple board game and called it the checkered game of life. The good path included honesty and bravery. The difficult path included idleness and disgrace. Industry and perseverance led to wealth and success. Bradley described it as a highly moral game that encourages children to lead exemplary lives and entertains both old and young with the spirit of friendly competition. In 1960, Milton Bradley Company released a commemorative edition called simply The Game of Life. That's the one that I played. It sold 35 million copies. In this game, you earn money, you buy furniture, and you have babies. Vices and virtues are non-existent. The winner of the game is the one who, at life's day of reckoning, makes the most money and retires to millionaire acres. In the 90s, Milton Bradley game designers tried to make the game less about money. They emphasized good deeds like saving an endangered species or solving a pollution problem. However, the only reward for these good deeds is cash. You can earn as much money by winning at a reality TV show, actually. And then, in 2011, a new version came out. Players can attend school, travel, start a family, or whatever they want. If they earn enough points, they can reward themselves with a sports car. There is no end or last square to the game. You can stop any time, and the box says, a thousand ways to live your life you choose. Values are up for grabs. You get as many points scuba diving as you get for donating a kidney. The description on the website says, do whatever it takes to retire in style with the most wealth at the end of the game. Now, I'm not saying that Milton Bradley, you know, is some sort of theologian, but that's kind of how the culture is and has gone, isn't it? And we're living today, today, in the timeline, today is where we're living, and what are we going to do? What are you going to decide? Are we going to live for God, who is our ultimate ruler, or are we going to live ourselves, for ourselves, however we want to? I quite honestly am not willing to leave the end, my eternity, up to a few moments of whatever on this planet. I want to surrender it all to him. Now, as the worship team comes up, I want you to turn to one last passage, and I'm just going to read through it, and then we're going to close with our final song. Galatians chapter 5. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Verse 13 is where I'm going to start. Galatians 5.13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. 
I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, but, but living in the Spirit... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Let's surrender our life to Jesus Christ in which time we will be filled with the Spirit, in which time we will not be thinking sexual immorality, jealousy, etc., though that sin, that old sin nature, that body is still there, and those challenges and and temptations will still be there. No, we we rest and and lean on the Holy Spirit because I want you to to see, look at verse 22, and, and I know you've heard me say this before, but it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Not the fruit of David Anderson's good discipline is love. No, that's the Spirit working it out in me. And if these things, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are far, far from our reach and they're not in our lives, we need to do some introspection and say, do I have the Spirit? And surrender our life to Jesus Christ. Let's sing this last song. Stand. Stand. Let's worship him.